You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Christina Previtt. You are listening to or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast. And this is another edition of the hashtag FemSquire series. My guest today is Hillary Walsh. She is an attorney, an immigration attorney. Her practice is the New Frontier Immigration Law in Phoenix, Arizona. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram at New Frontier Immigration Law. And I love your handle for your personal Insta page. It's at the Real Hillary Show. I love that. Yes. Two L's. Two so L's. Thank you for, yes. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you have a really interesting story. Before we even get to that, I just kind of want to tell people how we met. We're in the same coaching program that David Nagel is doing. It's called the Elite Mind. And it kind of progresses through a series. It starts with 90 days and then you can do 365 days and then you can move on. And um, I think we're just finishing up TEM 365, right? I just started. So I think you're probably at like day 300. You're at day TEM 300 or something by now if you're finishing up. But mine is, I probably am 120 days into my 365. So I'm behind you. So we're kind of mixed. We're a mixed bag. Yes. I don't, I don't know. Am I a slow learner? <laughs> no, I don't know Why? how it worked either because I'm friends with another person who's in it and she had done her 90 days. I was like, yeah, on the fence about it when she was first starting yeah. and now we're in the same group. So I think once you're in the year long program, you just all get thrown in together and then you probably get booted out when it's time for you to get booted out. Yeah. It's like, is it like graduating graduating from kindergarten? Like at some point are you just expected to (laughs) fly? Like, does David push you out of the nest? I don't know. No, I think that there's another program afterwards. So from how it sounds like there's a, there's an ongoing, I mean, I think that you're, we are all learning exactly what we're supposed to write when we're supposed to. So there's no right or wrong. And I don't think there's any getting shoved out of the nest unless you have like weird excuses and and I don't think those are coming up. So, yeah, well, well, we could now go into a conversation we started before and, and um, just kind of, I, I thought it would be nice to let our audience hear it. Cause I'm sure a lot of the David Nagel yeah. peeps will eavesdrop on this. So David gave us a challenge. I'm calling it the $20 challenge. I don't know what he called it, where he invites you to go up to a stranger has to be a stranger and just ask them for $20. And if David watches this, I hope he doesn't get upset if I don't remember like exactly the reason why we're supposed to do this. Perhaps that got lost on me a little bit, but it does have to be a stranger. And I think the point of it is to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but also to get comfortable just asking people for money. Because he, David teaches sales and people can have a lot of noise around that, like 
ask, trying to sell something, trying to ask mm-hmm. people for money. It's not easy for everybody. So that's the exercise. I have yeah, it's ask. It. Yeah, I think it's you're supposed to ask a, a random person what would what would it take for them to give you twenty dollars and feel good about it. It's not what would you have to do or anything else. Like what what would it take for you to give me twenty dollars and feel good about it? And then I think it's an energy exercise too because whatever you're feeling, they're going to they're going to mirror that and give it right back to you as well. Yeah. If you're like all weird about it or in your mind, you feel like it's something sexual, then they're probably going to say something pervy. And, but Um, yeah, I haven't done it. Have you? And it doesn't sound like you have either. I haven't done it, but I just had an exchange with Steph Tuss on the private Facebook group where she asked me if I did it. And I said, no, not yet. And then she asked me, well, when are you going to do it? And I'm thinking like, when's it due? Like five minutes before it's due. You know, but because I'm, I don't. Did know you do the five hundred thousand dollar challenge? I did it, but I did it. I originally started it out as just as an exercise, and then I found out Adele actually she was doing it and yeah. succeeded. That's, that's playing all like, in. <laughs> whoa, and that kind of shifted things for me when I realized like this is not just an exercise. Like we're not. This isn't just academic learning. You know, we are supposed to, I don't want to use the word supposed to, but we can do these things. We can actually do them. Like that's the point. So did you do it? I didn't do it. I didn't even sort of do it. I didn't even like put a pen to paper, do it. Mm -hmm. I know a whole bunch of stuff coming up there, much of avoidance. So then, uh, yeah, the other person who's in um, the program with me, she and I are really good friends. And so we have a bet and it ends on Friday who can close the most, like, we're basically just going to do a hustle and whoever wins their family has to travel to the other friend's town for a vacation in the next quarter. So it's a fun thing, but it's been interesting because I haven't really played all in on, even on that. So it's, it's, it definitely is like it's bringing something up. I'm just not sure that I really want to deal with it. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if the prize or even the, I don't want to say punishment, but failure, if you will, of not winning that challenge you have with your friend, is it big enough? Yeah. yeah, Like maybe it's not because do you really care whether you go see her or she comes to you? No bragging rights are more important to me. (laughs) Okay. But I love, I love some good shit talking. Oh, shit talking. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you were saying that you might not even do the $20 challenge. Yeah. I I don't like the $20 challenge because it was a challenge in the 90 day program as well. And I remember people coming up. It's interesting because it seems like some of the people who did it in the 90 day program, they're doing it again um, with, I mean, they have to be, because if they did it before, I don't know why they wouldn't do it again now and see kind of how things have changed for them. But I don't know. I just, I have, it's funny because in my mind, like the words that want to come out of my mouth are, I have no problem asking people for money. And yet I have a problem doing this challenge. So I know the two things can't coexist, but I have not done the challenge. And maybe, maybe this is like you and I are talking today and I just have to do it, but I really don't want to do it. I don't want to do it either. I don't want to do it, but I wonder what David would say about that. You know, there's some, you're triggered somehow. Like, why don't you want to do it? I guess I should take some time to reflect on why don't I want to do it? 
probably because I don't want the person to think like, not even that they'll just say no, but that they will just look at me like I'm completely crazy. Like who, like what? Like who does this? Who just goes up? Well, to I stranger think like the idea of like looking crazy or looking like I am out wanting to get people blow jobs for $20. I don't know. Like that actually makes me kind of laugh. The thought of people thinking bad about me. So that doesn't bother me so much as I think the idea I have created a story that someone would be violent with me. They would like spit at me. They would be disgusted by me. And those types of stories come up when I think through how is this going to play out? But the, the reality is I could pick the person I ask. And if I ask some like mom at school pickup, or, or maybe I wouldn't pick someone I actually could ever see again, <laughs> um, that person is not going to do any of those things to me. So, I mean, it is, it brings up a whole lot of really interesting stuff to say the least. I wonder if it stems from, I wonder if both of us are bothered by it because of our background from being kind of discarded kids. Yeah. I, cause I think that's really interesting. What you said, your reaction would be, it, it does seem like it relates to your childhood, which is really the reason that I invited you to come on here and, and talk. Cause I love stories about people that had adverse you know, adverse childhood and adverse experience at some point in their development and have still managed to be a perfectly functional individual and be as successful as you are. So thanks for coming on to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Now, have you ever talked about your background on your podcast? I had somebody interview me once who we did talk some, you know, a bit about my background, not like probably we talk about it as much as you and I did on the phone the other day. Probably not. Probably not. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Huh? Yeah. That's like you, nobody, it doesn't feel good when your therapist or your doctor says, huh? 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 (laughs) You know, there is more there. Yeah. So why did you become a divorce lawyer? Wait, are who's being interviewed here? I don't know. Don't you think that your listeners need to know a little bit of a layer deeper? They do. So maybe what we should do is I'll invite you back on. You would probably be <laughs> the perfect person to come back on and interview me because you promised me 90 minutes today and we are not going to spend 90 minutes talking about me. <laughs> well, I think that I think that it makes so much sense about why you really like the underdog story is because you see it in yourself. And I don't know if people, when they meet you, like my perception of you, and I don't really know you is you seem like a very successful, fun, loving, got it together person. And nobody gets to see, it's kind of like when you see a celebrity, you just imagine that they were born into it. Like I think about, I don't know, Taylor Swift, and she must've just had it easy. And you don't see all the years behind the scenes before Taylor Swift was Taylor Swift. I literally like Taylor Swift's a big deal in my house. I have four kids under nine and our dog is named Taylor because you know, why not? And he's a, he, but he's Taylor after Taylor Swift. So Taylor Swift's a big deal in our family. But I think that we, you really, each of us really appreciates other people. Um, when we can see where they came from and see where they are now, and they can have the hope that they can do it too. Cause we, it's easy to other people. Oh, well, they're different than me because, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I can totally relate to that. 
So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a connection between us and, and I identify with your story because we, when we talked privately about it, you always hear stories about uh, kids, maybe a, a little black girl or an Asian girl or an LGBT girl or boy. And you often hear them say, well, when I finally saw a woman of color or an LGBT woman in a place of power and influence, that was the first time that I ever thought, well, I can do it too then. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me because I've always felt like with my past that I had to overcome a lot and I still managed, I kind of joke, I, I managed to not be a stripper. Not that there's anything wrong with being a stripper, but, um, I managed to do better. I managed to like, you just described me be this Mm -hmm. successful person. And I think that when I was growing up, I never felt like I saw somebody like me, you know, like, yeah, I saw a white person, a white female in, in influential roles, but I just always felt like I was different that, you know, those people that I saw, they had it easier. You know, they came from a sweet, nice little family, you know, mom and a dad and a dog and a house and a white picket fence and all that. And, you know, their parents tucked them in at night and read them a book. And, and, you know, I didn't really have all those things, but you don't see that. Like what you just said, you don't always see what the adversity was that any person has experienced. So I'd like to find people like you. And talk about it because also you, the same with you, you're very successful. You, you know, anybody could look at you and, and not see your adversity. They could just think, oh, she probably came from a nice family that nurtured her and she felt safe. And maybe she went to private school or, you know, maybe she got to go to college and someone else paid for it and she didn't have to work or things like that but you don't really know. And it's really not true for you. Yeah. I think that so much of what we believe about other people probably isn't true about them. And that's, that's what this gets to tease out is because while I, I have a wonderful relationship with my parents now, and that's just in part that that is a testament to, um, just the power of forgiveness and in time restoring, um, all things. And, if, if there's enough time, <laughs> sometimes there's not enough time, but, uh, you know, we didn't go to private school. My, my dad, my mom says, I don't know, I should probably fact check this with him that my dad couldn't address an envelope or make out a check when he graduated from high school. And of course those were important skills to have, um, when they graduated in 1979, um, 1980, something like that. But the benefit of, and I, th- and maybe just like kids today, people, people don't, I think really value having a hard upbringing. And when we can, I mean, our parents always talk about walking uphill both ways in snow. And like, there's the running joke about that. And it is because we had to work this hard to get here where you are today. You are in a place of privilege now because of what I went through. Even if your privilege is kind of shitty compared to somebody else's privilege, like our generation got you here. Now you need to take it up or you're going to take it back down. You get to make that choice. 
And when we have so much of the, everything has to be perfect, like the, the pottery barn kids magazine, that's how everybody's supposed to show up in life. If you are, you know, I remember it being a really big deal a couple of years ago when I got to take my kids back to school, back to school shopping at the mall. It was such a big deal to me because we never got to do stuff like that. We would, I mean, I remember like having a hundred dollar bill to spend at the mall and it being the biggest deal because it meant I got to buy a new outfit for the year. <laughs> yeah. And that was a ton of money for my parents, four kids, 400 bucks to put brand new clothes. And we did not, we didn't go without with clothes. My mom, you know, we didn't go without like some people do, but when we have to pretend in this, maybe it's the social media world where our kids look perfect. And I do it too. Like I went out and bought my kids, these cute court color coordinating outfits the other day, took my iPhone out to the same place last year. We went for Christmas photos and took pictures of my kids and put it on Facebook. Granted, most of the time my kids look like, you know, they are unkempt. They have been, they're always in the pool. We live in Arizona. So they got like crunchy chlorine hair and that's how they live on a day-to-day basis. But I'm going to spit shine them for one day because I want to put on my Facebook, how adorable my kids are. Um, if we don't talk to our kids and we don't talk to our audience or our clients or whoever it is that we're serving about where we were and how we got to where we are, I think it's a huge disservice to people because it's not you need to go through hard things to become successful or to become whatever your idea of success is. It's we can go through hard things and they don't define us in the sense of I'm a victim. They get to, they have defined my path, my, my difficult things in my life being the, the getting the shit beat out of me. Um, when I was a teenage kid and a teenager and getting put in foster care and then getting put up in a lockup facility for runaway teenagers, because I thought that nobody would notice when I skipped play practice, because I thought I was that irrelevant, you know, that not everybody has to have that experience to then be on the other side and say, Oh, I had a hard time, but look at where I am now because of it. But I think that it's a huge source of power. It has defined the level of influence I get to have because I can walk into a room of a bunch of people who have never done anything. And they think that they're never going to do anything. And I get to, I get to tell them that they're wrong. And I can also walk into a room of people who have had the private school and mom and dad, my parents did tuck me in at night. <laughs> um, you know, they've had all of those things. Uh, recently I, I hosted a gratitude dinner for my law firm and we, um, went around the table and talked about what each person shared. What was something that you're grateful to someone for, and you don't thank them enough. It's like that unspoken gratitude. We get to tap in at any time and just really be, be happy. And one person shared that her whole life, um, she had wanted a a family who made pancakes on Saturday, kind of what you're describing when you were going through, like what you had envisioned for your childhood and you were deprived of that. And her husband is a pancake on Saturday kind of guy. And they just got married and it's just absolutely wonderful. And she just, she was like, I don't, I don't stop and thank him enough for the pancake on Saturday, because that was something that was so important to her that she always wanted. Um, man, you wouldn't appreciate something like that if you just always had it given to you. So those are such powerful gifts, even if at the time it really hurt. Yeah. And you know, something keeps popping up for me when I hear you talking is 
I get really fired up when I hear people talk about welfare kids or welfare parents, you know, their objection often to public assistance programs is, well, you know, why don't they just go get a job? You know, why don't, why don't my taxes have to support them? They can work. And they really don't understand the welfare family. And my response is always, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe the parent could go get a job. Maybe they can't. That's not even the issue for me. What about the kids? Why should the kids suffer? Mm -hmm. Because their parents are making bad decisions. Because I -hmm. see myself there. No, I see myself as the kid who didn't have the parents making the best decisions for various reasons. But does that mean that I should suffer too? And I think so often people just don't think about that. And it's like you said, we're not all starting in the same place. There's this commercial or, you know, Facebook wisdom, I call it floating around somewhere where they show these kids all lined up to start a race running. And then they say, okay, if you came from a divorced family, take two steps back. If you came from a family with drug abuse, take two steps back. And, you know, they give all these different examples and then they start the race. So the kids that are disadvantaged, you know, they're already further back. And it's easy when you don't see life that way, because it really is how it is. You don't appreciate that you did have a head start. Maybe not even that you had a head start, but the other kids were behind. Right. You just started at sea level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, because they had other really big grown up things to think about. And I just wish that everybody could appreciate that. And unfortunately they won't, there's people that have their opinions, but that's the way that I view things. And I saw it rear its head in another place recently. There is this Facebook group for attorneys that I'm part of. And this gentleman, an attorney was expressing dissatisfaction with a court case he had with, he was representing a parent and the child, they were trying to take the child um, away from the mother because she was a bad mother. I don't remember why, but maybe there were substance abuse issues. And he said, I don't understand why they're not just taking this child away and putting the child in foster care. Like anything would be better than what this child is experiencing at home with her mother. And that struck me because I don't know exactly how bad it is. I I recognize that there are definitely times when it is for safety, the child needs to be removed from the home. But I also know that when you're in a home where there is abuse and neglect, you are still emotionally attached to that parent. And I do think that sometimes it can do more harm than good to remove the child. Because my experience in foster homes was, I wasn't abused. I know there are foster kids that were abused, but I also was not in a loving environment. You know, I, and I was in several, I remember going to these homes and I never even saw the parents of the home. It was, I can only compare it to a child kennel. You would 
go. You would be shown to your room, which you shared with one or two other girls. And the foster parents had like their own section of the house where they were. And we didn't see them. We didn't eat with them. They did not interact with us. And I really, I, and I said this publicly to him, I said, you know, you don't know that a foster home would be better. I have experienced a foster home. I can tell you, you don't, you don't just go to the foster home and, and voila, you're in this wonderful, nurturing, warm environments. I mean, that'd be wonderful if that did happen. And I'm sure that there are some foster parents who provide that, but I was in several and I never experienced that. So it's just, it was interesting to me that this person was making this judgment, but I don't think he really knew what he was talking about. So I think that life can get really complicated when what we want for someone, what we think is the best, what we think this is the best thing for you is not necessarily what is actually the best thing for them. So I applaud that person for wanting the best for someone. And at the end of the day, you and I would never know what that kid's experience would be like, but you have your experience and your experience is really powerful. And it gets to help you inform when you're talking to your clients about this is what divorce is going to look like. And what's your plan with your kids and what kind of parenting are you going to do with your kids? Because you can be in a loving together marriage and have the exact same thing you're describing where, when you were in a foster home, the kids were completely disconnected. You can be in a, you can be in a regular old white picket fence, pancakes on Saturday, tuck you in on whatever night and still have a family that's completely, completely emotionally disconnected. So I don't know. Um, that makes you especially particularly uniquely positioned to be able to help your clients make a really, really big decision. And this other guy, you know, he's, he'll never know. We will never know what's going to happen for that kid. We can just hope for the best. Yeah. And in, in his defense, I mean, you pointed it out. He, he meant well, you know, he mm-hmm. wanted the best for the child. It was just a different perspective and he was receptive to my feedback. Mm-hmm. So good for him. That's, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a gold star. <laughs> that alone. Yeah, I, I was impressed by that. Um, and so if I could offer a different perspective, then I hope, um, you know, I succeeded in doing that. And maybe he will look at things a little differently in his cases, but mm-hmm. I want to talk about you and, um, specifically, you know, can you describe your childhood? What, what did you experience? How, and where did you grow up? You're in Phoenix. Is that yeah. I'm in Phoenix now. My husband's in the Air Force. This month we'll be married for, I think, 16 or we got married in 2005. So I think that's 16 years this year. Yes. Um, and Sean and I met when we were in Kansas. I'm kind of like replaying. It's like, let's fast forward backwards in my, in my, it's like you push rewind, which I realized just saying that makes me sound like I'm playing a video, a VHS in my mind. <laughs> this was all recorded on a VHS in my brain. Um, Sean and I met when I was 19 
And I tease him that as soon as I figured out that he was leaving, I was like, you are a prime candidate. We should get married (laughs) because it was important for me um, to be able to leave Kansas. I needed to, I needed to leave the state. I needed to get out of there. Um, When I was 16 years old, I was put in foster care and it really shaped the rest of my high school experience. I had skipped a grade when I was younger um, after being homeschooled for a while when I went back to school, I was, you know, just a really young sixth grader. And so by the time I was a junior in high school, I was 16 years old and uh, 15 years old, I guess. And anyway, my childhood was, was just fine. I think that my parents, my parents, I know did the very best that they could do. And, you know, I was talking to my older brother the other day and he just retired from 20 plus years in the army and done a lot of intense jobs in the army, deployed more, more times than I have fingers and probably toes. And he and I were visiting about the way we view our parents now that we're adults. And both of us have so much more compassion as looking at what, what they went through and, and reviewing everything through adult eyes. than we did as even as young adult eyes, both of us had a lot of, I, I guess I can really only speak for myself and what I perceived of my brother, which was a lot of bitterness toward our parents because we just didn't get it. And I think that there's no way to get it. You're a kid experiencing something. And then you've got a parent experiencing something. You probably have a lot more empathy, right? I'm guessing you have more empathy for your parents now that you're an adult and you see that adulting, it, it looks like we have it all together, but we really, really don't. And my dad was an alcoholic, was very abusive of my older brother. And really it was, it was punishment. It was like discipline taken to an extreme. My parents didn't just, I don't, I don't, and my dad never got drunk and just came home and decided to beat us up. It's not like what it, it is in the movies. It was, there was alcohol involved on a very intense level on and off in my dad's young, like my age that I am now, but he had four little kids. We lived out in the middle of nowhere and my mom was taking care of us when my dad was a traveling salesman. And so he would be gone for extended periods of time and then come home. And during the times that he was away, my mom had to rule with an iron fist of justice because she had to keep our house and our life in order. And she had no control over her life because she couldn't go out and make money. She, she had four kids to take care of. And she lived in the middle of a middle of um, a field in Kansas. So mom was a very strict mom. And my dad was a very strict dad. And then you throw in the dynamic of my mom hating alcohol use because she was abused as a child by multiple um, adults in her life, all who had alcohol problems. And you just, you see that cycle, you see that cycle and everything that we bring to the table with it. And I think that the easiest way for me to appreciate and to forgive my parents was just to say, I'll never get it. I will never get the pressure my mom was under and the things that she said to me. And even like a few years ago, she and I had a a big falling out and didn't talk for a long time. And that was such a sad time because I just held on to so much bitter energy. Um, and I was really depressed during that time, but when we finally did reconnect, we had it out and she said a lot of things that hurt me. And I said a lot of things that hurt her. And I have a lot of regret about that because 
She just was never given the tools to survive in a different way. We operate from like a carbon copy of what we were shown when we were kids. And the only carbon copy my mom had was what her mom had done. And she was treated very poorly by her mom, like true neglect, you know, not having enough food to eat and, you know, going to a friend's house when she was a little girl and finding out that cereal came from a box. You didn't just tear up pieces of bread and put milk on it. And that was called cereal. Like really sad when you hear about it and you think, I can't believe that was the seventies. You know, it's not like this was 1920 or 1930. And this was the great depression. This was my mother's life. She was born in 1962. So, um, you know, I can look at my mom now and I see that with every ounce of my being, I believe that she did the best that she could do. And my dad says the same thing. Uh, or my, I, I view my dad the same way. He often talks about how his biggest regret in his life was missing me growing up, me and my brother, because by the time he finally cleared the fog and was not just drunk all the time. And there were phases in his life where he would go cold Turkey and he was like Mr. Church. And he was trying so hard to be the perfect dad that it was like a light switch that would flip and you just didn't know who you were going to get. And that's, he was struggling with his own demons as we all do. But I really believe that if my, if I hadn't had that experience with my exact parents, I, I don't know that my life would be as meaningful. Like, I don't know that I could have hard conversations with people and tell them, I believe you were made for more because in my heart, I know I was made for more. And when I know it in my heart, I was made for more than some narrative somebody wants to make up about me. It's really, it is it almost brings me to tears because I believe it so much for other people. And we get to just, we get to just let it go. We can let it like, like a ball and chain every year. We watch that, um, the Mickey mouse, um, Christmas movie where you have the ghost of Christmas past, present, future, you know, yeah. with Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. I, you may have seen it. It's I don't know why probably I what, what it's called Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Yes. Yes. And you know, you see uh, goofy when, when he's dead um, he's like Marley in the story and he's like carrying around his, the invisible ball and chain. And that's like all of his regret in his life. And we can carry that around with us too. And that's all sorts of baggage that we have and it's invisible and no, because nobody else can see it, but it is so heavy and I'm still cutting off different chains and laying, I'm tired of carrying other people's balls around, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but if I had, and I tell my dad, like, and it doesn't really give him any peace. He's like, well, thanks for saying that, but it doesn't make me feel better. But I'm like, you can have all the regret you want about it, but I don't regret it. I'm glad that it happened because it made my life so much richer Well, that's interesting. You can say that because I know one of the things that David emphasizes a lot is seeing the gifts from what we might otherwise see as bad experiences. And for a lot of us, that's, you know, seeing the gift in whatever adversity we have faced. And I've had this conversation with him about my upbringing. And he asked me that, where's the gift? And I have to tell you the, I never, ever, thought of it that way. 
I had a VIP with him, I think in 2017 or 18. And it was really the first time that I was ever confronted with that thought of, is there a gift in all of it? And how did it benefit me? How has it made me the person that I am today? And that's really powerful when you can look at that experience and rather than have all the resentments that just eats you alive and colors everything you do, where you can turn it around and see it as a gift. So I'm wondering, did you also learn that from your time with David or how did you come to that conclusion? It's hard to really pull apart. I've been on such an intense personal development and kind of restoration journey the past really four years since I had my last little, my little human. Um, I don't know exactly where it came from, but I think the easiest way for me to comprehend and and believe and accept that was when I was working with Marla Mattinson, who's a David Nagel student as well. And she gifted me this way that she sees everything. And it really helped me appreciate it. So I'll, I'll share with you essentially for her. And I think for me on a big level too, is that before we were, when we were just on a soul level and we were just souls floating around out in the stars, we chose our parents and we chose our spouse. If we have one, um, or are going to have one, um, and our kids and, this huge soul gathering happened and we made agreements with each other at that time. And then we come to earth and we either fulfill those agreements or we break them. And I believe that my parents made an agreement with their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents, all the way down to me making an agreement and me saying, David Gaston and Laurie Gaston, I choose you to be my parents because you, I'm going to get emotional because you will help me have a bigger impact. And I mean, and thank you for that. Thank you for keeping your promise. That's incredible. And it helps me when I'm so mad at my husband. I mean, I got married to Sean when I was 20. We got together when I was 19. And I was at the time a anti-gay Republican who thought the immigrants needed to go back to where they came from and do things the right way. So I'm a pretty different person now. And that's crazy um, considering your upbringing. I would have thought you were, you know, really accepting of other people that are different. So that's, that's surprising to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but it's, and again, a part of me that where I can see people who are in that position and I can look at them with love and think, Ah, there's still time for you. You just need to marinate longer and you just see a little bit more of the world and uh, come back and see me in five years when you've actually lived. And maybe, I mean, my grandmother, um, may she rest, uh, you know, she didn't have that view and she didn't have lived her whole life. And that's just how she viewed, viewed things. Not, not every bit of it, um, not every bit of what I'm describing, but a whole lot of it. She actually wrote me a really funny, um, I had bought a book that said like a stories from your grandmother. And it was this little flip card thing that you can fill out. And, uh, she had scratched out toward the end of her life. She had previously written, who's your favorite president. She put JFK and she scratched out, put Donald Trump. (laughs) So (laughs) she was a, she was a, a true believer there to the very end. Um, 
But I think that when I have arguments or disagreements or frustrations with my husband, and we all do, I think that we have, anytime you have, um, anytime you have a pretty intense relationship with anybody, you're going to have really intense disagreements with them and you never show up as your best self. So it is what it is. And you see that every day. I'm sure when people come talk to you and they've acted like a jack wagon and now they want to get a divorce for me, it comes down to what soul agreement did Sean and I make? And who knows? I don't know. I'm, I'm inhabiting this body now and I either get to make the agreement or make, make a whole new path. Um, but I know that we agreed on a soul level to have these four kids. And I believe that we're here to help people solve, um, hunger issues. Sean and I really believe that we are very jointly in belief that world hunger is an issue that can be solved. It just is a matter of everyone deciding to do it. So that's what we're here for. For me, it's about freedom. If you are hungry, you can't truly be free. And so everything feeds into my desire to help people be free. Um, that helps me appreciate Sean a lot more knowing that just like I can appreciate my parents and be grateful to them. I can appreciate Sean so much more because I know that when we were souls, we made this agreement. I don't know the extent of the agreement. I haven't read the fine print because I can't see it right now, but I know that on a cosmic level before I ever inhabited this battery pack that Sean and I were, we, we are a thing, you know, and my parents and I were a thing and my brother and my little brother and my little sister. And on some level, you and me, we were going to have this conversation today because when you were a kid, were you in jurors when you were in foster care? I was in New York and I was in California. Okay. So you got to see coast to coast foster care live in. I just got to see the, I just got to see the middle state. And my experience was totally different than yours because it was such small town, little foster care stuff. There aren't, there, there aren't nearly as many kids in foster care in Kansas as there are in those huge States. But when I talk about that, what do you think about the idea that maybe you chose your parents and that they behaved exactly as, as you all agreed that they would, how does that strike you? I never thought about that, but it, it doesn't sound crazy to me. Do you think it could give more meaning to why you went through what you went through? Well, and finding the gift in it? Yes. I mean, I, I do as my life continues and I evolve, I do see how there's been a certain path and I don't exactly know what's in front of me, but I do see how one thing led to another and how all the things that have happened to me have made the path to the next thing. Like even what I do now for a living, I practice divorce law, but I've done that for 17 years. I really don't want to do that anymore, but I, the next things that I have brewing are definitely the product of everything that I've learned and experienced as a divorce lawyer, which came from my childhood. So I do see how everything evolves and everything's connected. I used to think that I I used to have a hard time seeing how I had any purpose in life other than to take care of my mother. And I would think, how could that be my purpose in life is to take care of her? Like that doesn't seem, I mean, it's, 
you know, nice that I'm here to, to help take care of her, but it always seemed to me, how could that be my purpose? And I'm finally starting to realize that that's not it. That might be a role that you play, but it's not your purpose in life. It's not the reason you're here. So I, even at the ripe old age of 46, I'm still figuring things out and still have plenty to figure out. But I think that's one of the exciting things about life is you should live until you're dead. Like every minute, there's not a time where you say, okay, I guess I'm done now. Just going to sit here, wait, you know, like you could be 99 years old that every single day that you get is a gift and whatever you choose to do with it is what you'll do. Did you ever read that book when breath becomes air? No, I haven't. Have you heard of that? Heard of it? I have heard of it, but I've not read it. I forget the name of the author, but he's, he was a neurosurgeon and he was interested in philosophy and he explains how he ended up becoming a neurosurgeon. But the book is his memoir about his experience dying. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get to finish the book. I don't want to give too much away because I hope you'll read it. But there was something that he said in the book that really struck me that I think about often. And he felt like he was just waiting to die. Like everything was about planning to die. You know, death is right around the corner. And he said at some point he realized, no, I don't know when I'm going to die. I know it will be soon, but I don't know when. And until then, I'm living. And that just has stuck with me. And so often when I hear, because I'll hear myself say these things like, oh, I'm too old to do that now. You know, I should have done that when I was 20. But then I think, but why? You know, I love stories like an 85 year old woman who went back to college to get her bachelor's because until yeah. you're dead, you're alive. Mm -hmm. I watched, um, a, I guess it's a documentary. I don't know what it's called, but, um, I watched, it's, I think it's called in her own words or something, but it's about Ruth, um, the great legendary Ruth and, she was, she mentions in there when someone created a Tumblr account for her being the, the notorious RBG. And she said, here I am, I'm 82 years old and I'm an icon. And it was the most, of course, adorable thing ever, but it was one of those things that kind of stuck with me where it's like, everybody keeps telling us you have to do something in a certain time. And then the people we appreciate the most are the ones who break that rule. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I, I try really hard not to, I, I guess David would call that destination thinking like I'm done now. There's nothing more for me. Never, you know, as long as we're alive, we still have things to do. I want to ask I you. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask the, one of the emphasis, the emphasis of the 90 day program or the 10, is to make goals and meet them. What's your current goal? Well, Hillary, I don't have one. I've struggled with that. I feel like I either have so many ideas swirling in my head that I don't even know what the goal should be, that there isn't a specific one. And I think, 
I think I do need to have one. I don't even know what it should be. Yeah. I mean, don't make rules about what it should be, but like, I mean, for me, it was like a total body transformation and that's when I got my mommy makeover. I quit drinking. I've lost like 12, 13 pounds now. Like just, I, and I I dyed my hair blonde. I was like, I'm going for it. Like we're going to, it's just going to be different. And I want to show up more how I feel inside and instead of how I'm showing up on the outside. Um, and it's been hard for me this time around after kind of having that explosive growth and with a body transformation, man, everything changes so fast. Um, the inward stuff is a lot, it's a, it's a long game, but we decided to do some, to move through, I'm moving through some tolerations, like getting new floors, put in our house, because in a lot of areas we have carpet, that's like old, gross and stained and stuff like that, getting rid of those tolerations, lighting my front yard. So we can see our pretty house that we live in rather than it just being like this dark abyss. So I don't know, maybe there are just a few things that, that will be fine. But if you're, re- I mean, like if we want to practice what we preach and we're saying we're really living, we're once like we're dead is when we're dead and we're going to really live until we live. We don't know which destination we're driving to. We're just in a car. We've got the, the gas pedal pushed down. That doesn't seem like actually making the most use of it. I do this all the time. So I'm not like, I'm not calling you out. I'm just, I feel you on that. Cause it yeah. is hard. I think like, David- what do I want? I know. Right. So it's, it's hard. Sometimes David will say that he asks people that question all the time. And a lot of times people will say they don't know, but he always says, but you do know. Mm -hmm. So I, another thing that I will need to reflect a little more on, um, but hasn't he said you, you only need to know two things. You need to know where you are and where you're going. So where you want to be, Mm -hmm. I think he has said that. Hopefully he'll listen to this. And if I'm wrong, he'll correct me. So sometimes just knowing even where you are is hard. Mm-hmm. It seems like an easy question, but it's not always an easy one. Cause you have to recognize and really be self-aware to mm-hmm. recognize where you are. Yeah. So what that brings up for me is when I first, cause I used to be like, you used to be in how to manage a small law firm. And I'm so grateful to that program and to Arjun and Erica and Nicole and the whole gang. But my very first workshop, they used to be for free, but now they charge for it, um, was intro to mindset and understanding. Cause I walked away from that workshop with Arjun understanding that the reason I had had such a big problem becoming an immigration lawyer for profit rather than working at a nonprofit or for the past five years, I had just been doing 100% pro bono work. Um, it was because I thought my clients were victims. How can you charge a victim money to help them? And I realized that I was making them a victim so I could save them. Mm. little, little white savior girl come riding in on her horse to come help these poor victims who had come to this country to make a better life for themselves because they are the creator of greatness. They did not need me to come ride. And I can't even ride a horse. (laughs) They did not need me at all. Other than they need a tool. I am a tool in their life to help them get where it is that they want to go. And that for me is if I hadn't realized where I was, if I didn't realize I was, I myself viewed myself as a victim. I was either going to be persecuted by someone or I was going to be rescued by them. And I was doing the same thing to my clients. They were victims who I needed to rescue. 
if I hadn't realized that that's where that's the paradigm I was living in, there's no way I could have busted out of that and started living a different life. I would have been broke. My clients would have not been responsive and I couldn't have helped very many people because I wouldn't have had any resources. So that knowing where you are is important. Well, were you rescuing you? Why do you think you were doing that? I mean, I think that I got, a, I, and I still struggle with this is getting a lot of self-worth out of being good at something. Like I'm a really good lawyer and I'm a really good business owner and I'm an okay mom, but someday maybe it'll be better. I'm an, I'm an okay spouse. Uh, that's always a room for improvement there. Like if you're giving yourself a grade sheet, you know, and when I could befriend someone and tell and help them see that I could help them get the result they need. And then I would go get it for them. Like that made me feel like I had meaning in my life. Like I, ah, I finally, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but really that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Like my validation shouldn't come from the outcome of anything. If I'm truly trying to help people, we're going to lose a lot. Like that's just the way it goes, but we can know that we did our very best and coming at it from that perspective you know, I was trying to rescue myself from feeling worthless. And so I was getting worth from other people thinking that I was something special. And I think, I don't know if it's necessarily a lot of lawyers, maybe it's just professionals. We get a lot of worth from the piece of paper that we paid a lot of money to get and took a lot of tests to be able to get. And at the end of the day, it still doesn't make us happy. And that's why we have so many professionals, especially lawyers who hate their job. It's because like we worked so hard for this. And I thought that this was going to give me value, give me Hillary Walsh value in this life. And then come to find out, I'm just, you know, I always hear people who are in commercial lit and that's what I used to do. Talk about how they're just making rich people richer and they just don't get, they don't feel like that's what they were made for. It's like, well, you may not have been, but being a lawyer wasn't what you were made for either. And you taking care of your mom and honoring her isn't what you were made for either. And we know that. And that's why we're unhappy when we do it. Mm, That's deep. (laughs) I think about that. I have a lot to think about tonight, Hillary. Oh my goodness. Well, there was something you said that struck me that I kind of want to ask you to clarify. So you, you appreciate that your mother was, you know, she did the best that she could, Mm -hmm. but then you also said later you, you still at times have resentment and you recently had a, I don't know, a, a thing with your mom. Mm-hmm. Are, are those two things compatible? Like, yeah. where do, you know, how do you reconcile those two things? So I'll give you some context. So when the school principal, when I was a 15 year old, I, my parents had, I had skipped, um, cross-country practice. And my parents found me parked on the side of a dirt road with a boy. And I was not allowed to even talk to boys, much less be in a parked car. In fairness, I was not fooling around with this person. This was someone I deeply loved at the time and really enjoyed his time. We were dating, but we had not done anything nefarious yet. We did later in part, despite my parents. Um, but in any event, my parents lost their ever loving mind because they could not control me. 
So I was doing a lot of, I wasn't necessarily doing things wrong. Like I wasn't out having sex. I wasn't out doing drugs, but they couldn't control me where I was saying I was going, I wasn't going. And they, they just didn't know what to do. So that's, that snapshot, the way they behaved when they felt like they couldn't control me was very, very, very violent. And the next day they sent me to school and I was all bruised up. Like I had been in a bar fight. One teacher, of course, they have a duty to report, reports it to the school nurse. I get pulled from class, the school nurse who I believe my mom and dad went to high school with, like everybody knows everybody asks me what happens. I lie and say that I got in a fist fight at a friend's house. Nobody really seems to believe it. And if they do, they say, we still have to talk to the principal about it. So my mom shows up, the principal is there and asks what happened. And my mom is not one to lie. And she didn't, she said, I whipped her ass and here's why she described it. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Um, And they send me home with her. And she says, next time I will hold your head down in the horse tank until you stop breathing because that won't leave bruises. That was on our drive home before I'm taken into custody with the state. And my mom has the used to have, she doesn't, I don't, I think it will probably enter, but she's, um, as we get older, we mellow with age. My mom had a way of just scaring the ever loving shit out of you because you knew that she was intense enough. She'd do it. And years later, you know, I don't know, 20 years later, I tell her how much that hurt me for her to tell me that, that she was basically going to like Kansas girl waterboard me. And she said, you deserved every bit of what happened. And I was so hurt by that. And I resented that. Like I can, it's one of those, like, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget this. Just like she probably feels about the way I acted and everything I put them through and the shame and everything that that situation has brought to them. And then God help me. And now here, 25 years later, I'm out talking about it all the time. And without them knowing or getting permission, it just is what it is. This is my story to tell. This is my experience to have And the way that I can say, you know what? I have resentment about how that went down, but I also know that you were doing the best that you could. It was the best she could do at the time. She didn't know better. She didn't. She, 20 years later, without any emotion attached to it, still felt like I deserved what happened. She did what she still believes was the best thing that she could have done. I was an out of control teenager, not drug, sex, and rock and roll, but for them, I was an out of control teenager that they didn't know what to do with. So that's the best that they could do. I don't resent them for that. So you can still recognize as an adult and, you know, you're the intellectual part. If you can recognize that these were just people that they didn't have good parenting, they didn't know how to do it. They were, they loved me. They were doing the best that they could, but at the same time, these terrible things happened and I was just a child and I'm affected by them now. Is that sort of how it is? Yeah. I mean, it is. That's a lot more concise way of answering that question. (laughs) Um, It is. We get to look back at what life has given us with whatever lenses we want. It's like when we're at the eye doctor 
and we keep going, it's less fuzzy, less fuzzy, and it's more clear. Stop. Then we do the other eye and we get to look back at life that way too. And we get to choose the prescription we put on. And if we put on the prescription of, I believe everything like life can come from every bad experience. More life is the whole reason I'm here to help people find freedom is like what I'm here for. And if I get hit by a bus tomorrow or, you know, whatever happens to me, if I'm able to give more life, I would not have, I would not have a platform if I hadn't been through that. How could I talk to immigrants about you're here undocumented and you want to see your family again? Are you going to live a life of regret or are you going to take your life by the balls and you're going to live it? If I didn't have that experience, because I had to make that same choice myself. So I don't know. I don't know the exact way of saying this was the moment when I stopped having resentment. And this was the moment where I could appreciate and love my parents. Um, but it, it was just, it was like, it was like a light switch and it just stopped. And I, I mean, I don't have to agree that my parents did the best that I think they should have done, but if that's what they think was their best. And my dad talks about all the time, how it wasn't his best and he has regret about it. But I get to free him of that guilt and shame with me. He can deal with it however he wants to deal with it, you know? Well, it's their own experience. Mm-hmm. It, like it's, it's not about us as the child. We were just there and part of it. Like, I'm sure if you talk to my mom, she, you know, she's apologized for certain things, but she had a different experience. It's like, you know how two people can witness a car accident, but they both see something different. Mm-hmm. And obviously with the, a parent and a child, you're in completely different roles, but you are each having your own experience with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said something interesting. You know, I think sometimes I'm a little conflicted about talking about things because my mother's still alive. She will hear it. And the, the times that I have talked about it, she didn't always like it and it would trigger her. And then when she would get triggered, I would get triggered because I would think, but, but it's my story and these things happened and I can't just pretend that they didn't happen and not talk about them. So have you, you know, what's your experience been with that? You know, wanting to talk and share your lessons, but at the same time, you mentioned that, you know, your parents don't love the fact that you talk about it. Yeah. I don't know the extent that they really know that I talk about it. Um, it's only been something that I have been able to talk about without just like being a puddle, um, maybe for the past year even. So I told my dad and my mom that this type of thing would come out sometime in my life because I was going to run for some type of political office, or I was going to be somehow in public eye and this sort of thing would come out. And I I love them, but I'm going to talk about it from the, from my experience. And my dad was from what I remember, and this has been probably five or so, maybe more years ago. And my dad was like, I will support you in anything you ever do. 
and they're not super pro immigration, especially, I mean, like they're pro from what I can tell, cause we really try not to talk about it. Cause it, it just, it brings up a whole bunch of stuff that we can sit around and not talk about immigration and have plenty to chat about. Um, but you know, my dad gave me five grand when I was buying my law office building and he just wrote a check. Um, I think maybe my mom did, but in any event, so I don't want to attribute the wrong gift giving, but they said, we want to help support you. We were trying to buy this office and I didn't have, I mean, I probably had five clients at the time and it was a really, really big leap of faith. And they were like, we don't have enough money to help you pay more, but I want to just give you, cause I'd asked for a loan. I just want to give you $5,000 to support you. And that meant a lot because I knew that it probably cut against what on some level they don't necessarily agree with. So kind of pulling this back to your question, if I were sharing this just for the sake of sharing it, I would, I would feel very different about it. But the reason I share what I went through is because it's cathartic for me. I think that we get into a, a competition within ourselves of somebody always has it worse and somebody always has it easier. And the way we show up in life is not necessarily reflective of the easy or difficulty of our upbringing or even our yesterday. And if we can be so authentic and the only way I know how to be so authentic is to be as real with you and honest and open about you ask me a question. I'm going to give you the most honest answer I can in this moment as I would with anybody else, with my dearest friend sitting at my kitchen table in my, in my home. And I can't not talk about Hillary, who was 15 and what she went through and come and be on a podcast for other women entrepreneurs and pretend like that didn't happen. I just, I can't be authentic in that. Um, and I also think that every person has something that in their past was painful. I, I mean, everybody, something has hurt them and they can hopefully hear us talk about this and not hear, oh, they had it worse. They've like, look at them because they had it bad, blah, 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 blah. No, in spite of the longer race that we had to run, we're here. And I, my view in life, and I know yours is too, is we can all get here. Like, come with me. The party is fun. It's not an exclusive club. Like we can all get here together whether you are starting 10 steps back or whether you're starting five steps ahead of me, I'm going to, I'm going to catch your ass and pass you and then, you know, talk some shit about it while we're having coffee together, you know? Yeah. I think, I think there were times too, that I didn't want to talk about things because I would hate when you would get the, the sad puppy eyes, like, Oh, I'm so sorry. That People happened. don't know what to do with it. And, and sometimes they're sorry. They even asked, you know, like just a simple question, like, Oh, are you close to your dad? Um, no, <laughs> he's dead. He abandoned me when I was a kid. He died from AIDS because he was a heroin addict. Oh, oh gosh. Um, oh gosh. Um, okay. Did you decide what you're going to pick from the menu? <laughs> like they're, they're like, Oh my God, how do you react to that? I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm past it. We're good. <laughs> so there it's not that I hide it. It's just that I'm kind of choosy about who I should talk about it with. 
because I don't want them to feel sorry for me. You know, there's nothing to feel sorry for. You know, these things happen. We don't have any control over what other people feel though. That's their, that's their prerogative. So any, if that's happening, what I would argue, what I would suggest or challenge you on is the people you're picking are picking up on your energy about it because you don't know how to feel about it. So they're like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to think about this. Because if you don't know how to feel about it, how are they supposed to know how to feel about it? Well, yeah, funny story. Funny, not funny. Can I share with you something personal? And then they're going to be like, okay, yeah, tell me. And then it's just like this whole, you whoosh, immediately go deep with someone. And then they can be like, dude, thank you so much for sharing that with me because now I can appreciate you so much more. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I never thought that I had a, a weird energy around it. Maybe I do though. I mean, if you haven't figured out how it connects to your present life, then it's the, it's like, um, it's like walking around like the Riddler. It's got a big question mark walking around with how do you today in this social setting with this particular person, how do you want to address this? Or we'll just not talk about it. No, I haven't talked to him for a few years which is true. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, um, you know, some, I, I think I said to you at some point, like, it's not a contest, like who had it worse, you know, but there are mm-hmm. times when I'll hear someone else's story and it was like way worse than my story. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, I can't even believe I've been complaining at all. You know, like that's really bad, but it's not a contest. You know, there could be somebody else who had it a lot easier, had adversity because we all have, and maybe they just weren't as strong or whatever their sensitivity was, you know, they couldn't get through it um, the same way because we're all individuals. You know, there's like a kid somewhere who thinks that hangnail is like the end of the world. Right. And then there's another kid that can withstand a lot. Uh, Like my brother and I, Um, you know, he's had a lot of challenges in his life and the challenges that I didn't have. And people will often look at us and go, well, it's interesting. You grew up in the same household, but you turned out so differently. And, you know, I just think in some ways I was able to adapt a little better, maybe to what we were presented with and, and he wasn't, he experienced it differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I try not to think that everything's like a comparison, you know? Yeah, it's not. I mean, and I think that that is, that's what keeps us from really embracing, I guess, our uniqueness is that at all times we are trying to figure out where we fit in within some type of social setting, especially now that we're, we've been alone for so long and now we come back and how are we supposed to behave? And I don't want to behave that way anymore, whatever it is, but yeah, comparison is, I think the Bible talks about it being the thief of joy. And it really is because I can be on a badass vacation. That's badass for me. And if I see that somebody else is doing something more amazing, 
I allow it, it can steal my happiness and I'm on, I'm on a beach somewhere. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know. Just look at Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Everyone has a perfect complexion, (laughs) you know, all the filters and everything, everything looks perfect. You know, life is perfect on Instagram. Yeah, it is. But it's so much richer in real life when we look like shit. Yeah. The real stuff, the real stuff that's happening. The real stuff. Yeah. So we haven't, I feel like this, this time together has just flown by. I, I do want to hear a little bit about your experience when you, I feel like we kind of left off with your parents finding you in the car. You ended up with a black guy, but when were you taken into custody? When were you removed from your parents' custody? Was it that event? Yeah, it was that event. Um, and it was, I don't, I never really got hit in the face, but there was a lot all over my body and my arms, but, um, my parents have a floor covering store. So they sell carpet, tile, wood, anything you like glue or tack down to your floors in our little hometown in Kansas. And later on in the day, like I got sent home from school with my mom, which really made no sense. Um, in hindsight, like what were, what was the deal there? And we went to uh, my parents' store because that's where my dad was working. And a CPS employee came to my parents' place of business and they took pictures of me. And for a long time, actually this past year, I I did a, a workshop where I addressed some of this very painful baggage, but they, they had me pull down my, um, they took pictures of my naked legs and butt. And probably the front as well. I don't really remember, but there were bruises everywhere up my back and they had to take pictures of it. And I was in my par- the, the bathroom of my parents' floor covering store. So a very familiar place that we, it's like our second home. And the idea that those pictures are out there was something that really hurt to think about and almost kept me from wanting to be seen because what if someone hacked into this and then they shared it? And I don't know, like the crazy things that we think up, um, that was, that was also traumatizing, probably equally traumatizing to the actual beating. And then from there, I got sent to a foster home, just actually not too far from where my parents' store was there in Wellington. And they had a bunch of their own kids. They were a lovely, uh, everybody had red hair. Everyone was, it was a redheaded family. Um, so I don't know, the gingers took me in and were very lovely to me. And I had a little twin bed and I was not with them for very long before I got transferred to, um, a lady who lived across the street from my high school that I was at. And her son was a couple years older than me and had graduated high school by then, but I knew him. And I think he's actually the band teacher at my local high school now. Um, so it was all very, it was all a very strange experience because, um, I actually just reconnected with at the time, one of my very best friends, um, from high school, she and I just connected on zoom a few days ago and she was like, I'm really sorry. Cause I've heard you talk about this experience and I don't really remember it. Like, I don't remember being involved with you or supporting you. And I feel really bad. And I'm like, I don't know where you were either, but like time just, I, I don't have memories of it. It was, um, it was a really awful time. And my friends from a different high school came over one day and we were going to, we went to Sonic. Do you guys have Sonic on yeah. the East coast? 
Yeah, we do. We went to Sonic for happy hour to get like the buy one, get one slushies. And I skipped play practice. I was in the music man and it was a bit roll. And I didn't think anybody would notice that I was not there that day. So we went and got slushies at Sonic. And when I came back, the police were there and they took me to a lockup facility for runaways, because when you don't go where you're supposed to go and you're in foster care, you get put in lockup. And again, it's like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Like I wasn't out drug, sex, and rock and rolling. I was literally with girlfriends at Sonic, but no one could control me. I was just breaking the rules and doing whatever I wanted to do. And my mom, that's one of the things my mom said that I deserved as well. And I, I learned so much about life at that lockup facility because I had never been around people of color. I had never, um, I'd never been to a dance before, um, you know, outside of my little middle school lunchroom. Um, they'd had a Halloween dance one night. Anyway, it was a wild experience. They medicated me against my will. Um, they gave me a bunch of drugs. So that was interesting. And I had to write my initials in Sharpie on all my clothes so that it would come, those clothes would come back to me. And when we moved to this house last year, actually last year, like 50 weeks from now ago, I finally threw away an old sports bra that I had moved countless times. I mean, it was like all stretched out, you know, like old stretchy and it kind of just starts to disintegrate. It was a white sports bra, um, that had my initials on it. And I was like, you know what? I, I just don't need this anymore. Like I'm done. I'm done carrying this around. And I just left it at the old house and threw it away, you know? So I, I think that the most valuable part of that experience was the, the gift in it all. I mean, a lot of it was a gift, but going to court as you, I don't, do you do family? Do you do child custody stuff? Or just I courts? have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. We go to court, as you know, and the state has to decide it. Like that guy was talking about on, on Facebook and that, in that group you're in, um, whether the, the state should take the child or where, whether the child should be reunified with the family. And it's a big deal because it's a constitutional right to be a family and all this other stuff. So you have to have these hearings. And I went to this hearing, not knowing, I mean, I knew I was going to court. I didn't know what I was going to court for, didn't know why we were going to be there. And my parents were there. I walk in with this guy who walks in and tells me, let's go. And we sit down at a table across from a little walking aisle from my parents and their lawyer. And come to find out the guy I was sitting next to was my lawyer, my state um, appointed attorney. And he told the judge that I was ready to be reunified with my parents. And I was not, but I was like an arm's length away from people who had physically hurt me. There was no way I was going to be like, no, 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 no. I'm not cool with this. He didn't even ask there. you though in private. Didn't even ask. They just me. assume that you anything. do want to be reunified. Mm-hmm. It's very That's what I mean, is they make assumptions about yeah. what people want and what's best for people. I also think that, you know, I remember, I remember knowing how to show up, how people expected us to show up. Like you act, you put on a show and on, and on some level, I still do it for court. I'm, I'm trembling. Usually when I'm in court, I have a very upset stomach beforehand, um, to this day. And I've been an attorney since 2012. So I don't know, eight, 10 years, 11 years, whatever. 
I can't do math. <laughs> and I still get so nervous um, to do court. And I think in part because of that initial experience, but you can just play a part. And I remember playing the part of our family being perfect. When someone would come in, it was our bread and butter. We had to sell to them. We're charming. We're funny. We can make it happen. We're a little family, perfect little family business. And I assume that that, that attorney probably perceived us that way. There, there had been some type of knockdown drag out troubled teen night. Everybody's got, everybody has one. This kid needs to go back home, but that person was not my advocate that day. And so it has made me a lot better attorney because people talk about this in immigration court all the time. My attorney showed up. They didn't talk to me beforehand. They told the judge, blah, blah, blah. I had no idea what was going on and it's horrifying. So, so when they took you away from your parents, were you happy? I was scared about going back home because I was afraid my dad had told me because he was on a, some type of probation to not drink, but he was drinking anyway. He was violating his probation. He was very vocal about it. When I got back home, that if he got caught because of me, he, I, I believe if I remember correctly, that he said he would kill me when he got out of jail. So if that did not actually happen, that's the memory that I'm still walking around with. So who knows? My dad quit drinking after that. And he's been sober basically since then. So again, just a huge gift. It changed my parents' marriage. It changed. It completely changed the way my dad parented my little sister and brother. Both of one is four years younger than me. And one is eight years younger than me. So all of that, it was like, it's like popping a zit. It was messy, but it completely cleared things up after that. And if it, I'm glad it was me, Hannah and David, my little brother and sister had a completely different upbringing and they have a wonderful relationship with my parents that didn't have to go through all this weird shit, painful shit to be able to get there. So, and I'm hoping that their parenting is totally transformed because what happened was everything came to a head. And this is where I think that the soul level agreement, like, I believe we all said, okay, Dave, you, you're going to have been a victim of child abuse and all sorts of crazy manipulation from your parents. Cool. You're going to marry this lady named Laurie. She's going to have been through all sorts of shit. But when it comes to me, I get to break the cycle. Cool. You, you guys got to be really shitty to me though. Okay, cool. Let's go. And then we did it. We played our parts and we completely, my heart is racing just even talking about this, but we, we broke the cycle because we kept our agreements that we made. There will be no more domestic violence in my family. There will be none of my sisters and none of my brothers because I helped break that cycle for my family. That's pretty powerful. It's awesome. How were things for you when you went back home? I mean, it sounds like it changed. Yeah. I was only home for about nine months before I moved out because I, I graduated. It's kind of a blur still, but I don't know. I I was out of there really soon after it was either a year and a few months, or it was just a few months. I think it was a year and a few months now that I put back together my memory, but I was out of there really quickly. My parents were not supportive of me going to college. They wanted me to stay and help run the family business. I got a vocal scholarship to a junior college. Thanks to a, my high school music teacher being like, you need to go do this. So I went to college and 
you know, there was still so much control, like my car that I was paying the car insurance for, I couldn't drive when I got grounded at college, like, and they would like check the, the, is it called a barometer? speedometer, whatever the, yes, the speedometer or the odometer. odometer, the odometer. There we go. <laughs> oh my gosh. To make sure that I hadn't driven anywhere. And this is freaking in Kansas. You can't get anywhere without driving. So I had an old crappy bicycle. I was riding around like some type of loser, um, on campus, but you know, the, that's why like marrying Sean and getting to just grow into whoever I was meant to be and him still being so supportive of me. I am so grateful to him for that because he could be very frustrated by the woman I ended up, he ended up marrying like surprise. I'm nothing. I'm, I am not what you thought you were getting into. Um, cause he has not, he has just been this really steady rock for me and that I get to grow almost upon, like he laid such a safe foundation for me that I get to just be like this blooming flower and, I, I could never have done that if I didn't get out of, if I didn't get out of there. Do you think that you were attracted to him because of his stability? Like, was that a, I, I know you were both very young, but do you think that was part of the attraction? The attraction with Sean was he was so much fun. I actually was concerned that he was going to be too much of a party boy because he just was so much fun. And I was looking for someone who was really stable, like very serious, going to have a job, be able to provide, must bear children by the time I'm 22. Like that was my worldview at the time. But I think, I, I mean, I really think that the thing that really sold me on Sean was we were going to get to get out of Kansas. <laughs> so, um, but when I met his family, we went back to Jersey um, for Christmas and I met his dad, who's the sweet Canadian American um, just salt of the earth. And he just loved me. And his mom was not a fan. She asked me at my bridal shower, if all girls from Kansas get married when they're 19 years old, when they're teenagers, I think is what she asked me during my bridal shower at her home with all of her friends. And I was like, I knew it was supposed to be insulting, but I was like, I didn't know better. It's like, yeah, why? (laughs) Do you get along oh, better now? <laughs> we do. We do. I mean, yeah, you have four grandchildren and all of a sudden you're in forever. So she's, she is wonderful and she grew up in New York and she, it's just very different approach to conversation than I was used to, which is a very, very old folksy Kansas girl. So, um, I don't know. There were so many, and Sean's siblings are really wonderful too. He's one of seven and his siblings are just amazing people and people you can, from the very first time you meet them, you just feel safe with, and you can say off the wall stuff and it's not going to phase them because they're really off the wall too. And that's so much fun. You'll have to look me up when you're in Jersey or his parents still in Jersey. They're not, they still have a home there. Um, and a couple of his siblings are still there, but when the first grandchild was born, they moved out to Ohio to be near him. And so they're Ohio transplants and they're always thinking about getting back to Jersey, but it's just so the taxes and the traffic. And I don't know, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're coming out here at the end of the year. And we're always trying to convince them to move out to Phoenix because the weather is so good out here. 
Yeah. Well, if you're ever in Jersey, you have to look me up. Yes, for sure. For sure. And as something that keeps popping up for me, do, or do you believe in reincarnation? Um, I don't know enough about reincarnation to say yes or no, but I do think that our souls, I read this and this was a David recommendation that again, like you can't pull apart, um, a ball of yarn and say, this was the moment when I started believing what I believe, but he recommended, this was when I was feeling a lot of suicidal ideation, even though everything was going perfectly. I was still, I was still very tormented by the idea that I was going to kill myself And he recommended I read conversations with God and it's a three-part book. And this guy is just a regular dude and God talks to him and they have conversations that he writes out over the course of many years. And one of the questions that he asks God is he talks about aliens. He talks about abortion. He talks about sex, why it feels so good. And yet we're not supposed to do it with everybody, like all sorts of fun stuff. He talks to God about And, um, God makes some dad jokes in there, you know, so that's always entertaining as well, but he talks about how our soul is, it just occupies our body. And then it's just free that our soul is actually irritated by the fact that it's in this body when it used to be free. So I don't know if I'm necessarily going to go in like take up space and some other thing later in life, or if I just get to run around and be a soul. But for now, um, I just know I want to help people be free. I have to read that book. What's the name of it again? Conversations with God. And I, I started with the third book. I don't know why I was really drawn to it, but it's, it's not something you'll be able to just burn through. It's one of those, like, you'll read it and it's going to be like, this is blowing my mind. Um, Sean started with book one and I never read all of book one or book two, but I read book three and it was very, very transformational. And it really, it taught me how I don't actually get to decide and nobody else gets to decide when life ends, you decide. And even if it's sudden, it's, it's like, it all feeds into that ultimate choice that when we were souls, this is what we decided. And that we're just here playing out the part that we promised that we would play. Well, I read this book that oddly enough, my dermatologist gave me and it's many lives, many masters by Brian Weiss, MD. He's a psychiatrist and he talks about how he would, well, the the book is premised on using hypnosis to discover prior lives, but his whole, the whole book is about his experience when he first started doing hypnosis and this one particular patient, how he discovered all these lives that she had. And I don't want to give too much away, but he talks about reincarnation and sort of how it works and that you do have these past lives. And a lot of us are still interacting with people that we also interacted with in prior lives. So these souls are all still kind of lingering around and they, a lot of them stay in our lives and they have, they're different people, but a lot of times they're tendencies and their personality tendencies or the dynamic is the same Mm -hmm. in each life. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, I'm not going to say that I absolutely believe in reincarnation, but I will say I don't not believe. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, it makes sense even from like a, a, like if I'm half of my mom and her experiences 
what were we listening to? I feel like it was a Nagel related thing, but I was listening to something and maybe it was something I was reading. Dang, this is the trouble when you're always consuming stuff. You're like, well, did I dream this up? But it was talking about how, oh, it's gonna make me crazy where I can't figure out where I read it, but we react, we learn to react in specific ways and they're usually to keep us safe. And then we pass that down. There was a study that was done on rats. And if you released the smell of cherry blossom and something else, they had, they had like the floor would electrocute the rats when the smell came in. So they associated being electrocuted with the smell. And then the next, like then the rats had babies. And even though those baby rats had never been electrocuted, when they smelled the cherry blossom smell, they became very anxious and frantic and running around and probably didn't really even understand why. So even without the idea, like a soul can transition into another soul, we have science that tells us our experiences are informed by the experiences of our parents. And we don't even know why we feel a certain way that we feel, but if seven, the Bible talks about like seven generations, like your, your, your blessings and your curses will follow you for seven generations. It's like, okay, well that, that may be true, but also science is saying that, you know, the things that have happened to you will, will be passed on to your offspring. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. i hopefully you remember where you read that. <laughs> I know I'll message you when I do because it's fascinating when it comes to you, let me know. And, um, I will share it with our audience too, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately we're at the end of our time together and lovely chat, my dear. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I got so much out of this. I hope you did too. Mm -hmm. Um, I will have links to all these things in the show notes for people that want to check out these books and links to your social media pages and your website. So if anybody people can learn all about immigration law, and yes. listen to a gringa speak some really bad Spanish. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I was going to ask you if you spoke Spanish because I looked at your website and there was a lot of Spanish on there, but no, nope, like not me. She's not Mexican in her, even though her last name's Walsh. <laughs> I don't know. No, I got. It was funny. I was in New York a couple of days ago, or yesterday, and the day before for a USCIS interview. And my client asked me if I was Jewish, and then the guy in my my taxi driver asked me if I was from Mexico, and I was like, I wonder if the blonde hair is just throwing people off because in that when you're in New York, it's such a diverse place. Like you could be anything. And so people were trying to figure out which bucket to put me in. I'm like, you guys, I am just a mutt that only speaks English. I have nothing exciting about me. <laughs> oh, you have a lot exciting about you. Well, you know right? what I mean. You know what I mean. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to end with one question. Drum Can on. I have $20? <laughs> you didn't ask the question though. It's what would. Yeah, I think that's why I'm having what a block. It- what would it what? take for you to give me $20 and feel good about it? What would it? Yeah. See, I, my main mind goes somewhere sexual. Like yeah. I can't ask a man. Cause I feel like they'll be like, really? Well, what are you offering? It's only $20. Yeah. Only $20. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. But you know what? <laughs> if someone says, show me your boobs, wouldn't you be like, I still got it. I'd be like, that requires more than $20. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So funny story. I have, you know, a a lot of my clients will come in and they have a lot of guilt and shame about their criminal history, but like we all got our baggage. 
And I had one client who he's super proper. I mean, looks like a TV minister, just perfect everything. And we're going through everything with him. We're like, okay, do you have any criminal history? No. Okay. Just so you know, we're going to do fingerprint check and everything will come up. Do you have any criminal history? Nope. Nothing. I'm clean. All right. Come to find out about 20 years ago, he got busted for asking an undercover cop down here in downtown Phoenix for a blow job. And he offered her $30 for it. And the part that was most offensive to me was it was only going to be worth $30. Like that's it. And this, I granted it was when the the dollar was worth more. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Come on. And everything. What would it be? Oh, seriously. Yeah. Uh, So with that, I bid you adieu. Baggage we carry right. Yeah, twenty bucks. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Give me the twenty. But it's twenty bucks. I mean, some people will be like, just if you'll go away from me, I'll feel better about that. And you're like, pow, pow. You're twenty bucks. The the other the other story I carry is like, who carries twenty dollars? Whoever carries cash around with them anymore. That's true. Well, I did go on the Facebook group and ask people to Venmo me twenty dollars, but it doesn't really count because they're not strangers. Yeah. Hmm. We, I need to go somewhere like near the, like the retirement where all the snowbirds are hanging out at the mall and, um, they'll have cash. My mom always has cash. For example, I'll go hit up some retirees. Well, I don't want to do it. I don't I'm trying do to think it. like, what would I do if somebody came up to me and said, Hey, and they don't look like a homeless person. Hey, um, I'm doing a social experiment. I guess we're not supposed to say that. I mean, he didn't say you have to do it any particular way. What would I have to do to give you $20 and feel comfortable? See, and you're still putting that you would have to do something. What would it take for you to give me 20 bucks and feel good about it? What would it take? I don't even know the answer. I mean, Somebody be like, sing me a song. There's absolutely nothing you could do. You could give me a hug. You can call my ex and tell her I love her. Just ask for it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We have to do it. We've talked about it enough. We have to do it. We have to do it now. You're literally fidgeting with your shirt. Oh my God, I know. Oh, it does. This makes me nervous. The last, yeah. the last exercise that we did, the last challenge, the make five hundred thousand dollars in in a week challenge, that didn't scare me. But maybe it was because I didn't actually think I was going to do it. Yeah, but you have to do it because you didn't do the last one. I know. I know. I didn't even pretend. I made some sales last week though, so I'm I'm neck and neck with my amiga, I'm trying to beat out. Okay. It's so good to visit with you. Thank you for having me. I will be on as, um, I'll be Oprah and interview you next time. Oh yes. We'll have to figure that out. But anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening or watching and thank you for sharing everything, Hillary. Yes. It was absolutely lovely. Thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you and see you next time.